Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, boxing fans around the world. The Lifeblood of Boxing series is back with our newest episode. To repeat what we do, the Lifeblood of Boxing series is here. Celebrate those fighters who give you the fights you deserve so that you can go back, enjoy the fights that they gave you, the wars, the ones that actually try to entertain you, not the ones that want to bore you. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're slugfests, rather that they're actively trying to win the fight because it's a fight. Doesn't mean they have to slug it out, but you figure out a way to win the fight. That's who we celebrate on Lifeblood of Boxing. So, without further ado, I'm honored and privileged to introduce our next entry into the Lifeblood of Boxing series, and I may get a little bit of heat, as I say in the, bo- the wrestling business, heat for this selector, but I think once I step you through it, you're going to understand why I chose this young man. Not many people realize that the savage Sam Eggington Despite the fact that he has given us numerous fight of the year candidates over his storied career, I don't think he gets enough credit. Despite the fact he has losses on the record, the con- the, the current narrative from boxing, I don't want to call them fans because a lot of these are just not fans. They're just fanboys or fangirls. It, they're just followers. They don't, they're not really fans because if you were a fan of the business of boxing, and I stress the word business of boxing, you would look at the, the fights, you would look at what they give you and then make your judgment based on what they gave you. Sam Eggington, over his career, this guy, he is a warrior. He's the definition of a warrior, like unlike anybody else. And I think just because he's largely been regional, that's held him back a little bit because he largely fights out in the UK. He's gone overseas a couple of times, but nowhere near like some of the other fighters. And I think that's lessened his exposure to the mainstream. Many people in the mainstream don't follow international boxing like I think they should, and that's, I would blame the networks, because when we lost HBO, we lost the ability to see a lot of these guys in contention, unless they were facing somebody who was already well-known or well-regarded outside of the international spectrum. Let me just step through, because I think it's important to talk through what this guy was all about. There used to be a show, and there's a couple of these that have happened over time, a couple of these types of shows that have happened over time, but there used to be a show way back like a decade ago, I want to say, like 2007, 2008, and it was called Prize Fighter, and it was a a tournament. In today's boxing, we've kind of moved away from the tournament concept, except for the WBSS, World Boxing Super Series. Um, the Super Six, which of course is most notable with Andre Ward, Superfly tournaments. We have them every now and then, but we don't have them like we used to have, which I think has led to the decline of getting the fights that we want to see because the tournament forced these guys to fight together and it was matched based on wins losses. So if you wanted to move forward, if you were in these kinds of a tournament, you, you basically had to get the win. You had no choice but to show up and beat whoever your opponent was, and you didn't really have very much control over who it was you fought. So when you think about guys, I'll call off a couple names. Martin Murray, who's most, I would argue, most known for his loss to Golovkin. Martin Murray was dominant in Prize Fighter 4. This is uh, 2008. Dominant all the way through. Tony Oakley, another one. He was in 2009. And they have them by division. They have them by weight class. So you could theoretically envision that we should have had a welterweight version of this kind of a tournament 
And it would avoid what we currently are seeing with the welterweights where they're doing everything they can not to fight each other until they so-called marinate the fight. That's a symptom of not forcing them into tournaments like this. In the olden days, so now you're talking like 2010, 2011, guys like Junior Witter, they got more known because they were part of this tournament. And then, of course, Tim Bradley shocks Junior Witter. And Witter had been beat before, but Bradley arguably wasn't expected to beat Witter, certainly not in his hometown. If you were to look at the welterweights that fought in the prize fighter, Junior Witter is like the only one you could really think of that was notable that would move on to any level greater. Most of the welterweights you got now didn't come up through tournaments like this. They came up through promotional build, promotional development, PBC, ESPN, HBO, Floyd himself. He wasn't part of any of these kinds of tournaments. He came up because he was fighting the guys who were headlining. There was a time when even Floyd, the only reason that you would have known Floyd is that he fought guys who were already known and that established him in the mainstream's eyes. So on and so forth. Sam Eggington, he fought in Prize Fighter in 2014. I think that's the only one he did. He might have done another one, but I know he did in 2014 the Prize Fighter tournaments. During the Prize Fighter, it it's pretty clear he's something. There's something here. He's not like a knockout artist. He's not like a dominant beast, but he is solid. He's I wouldn't say eye test, but he's solid for what he was. He moves up the rankings and then eventually gets past the prize fighter and starts going into the regional and international title contenderships. He wins international titles. He wins Commonwealth titles. He wins regional titles. Then he meets Brad Skeet in 2016. Brad Skeet beats him, I would argue, pretty easily. If you didn't get a chance to see this fight, and most people probably would not have, I think it's worth taking a look at that fight if you get a chance to against Brad Skeet with Sam Eggington because here's the thing. Even though Eggington lost that fight and even though it wasn't like close, like you can't say that, okay, this was, it could have gone out of the way. Blah, blah, blah. It wasn't any of that. It's still worth watching because when you watched Eggington, the effort he put into the fight, he tried to win. He tried to get it even though it was just a regional title. Even though it was a basic title, he was actively working to try to win the fight. And it's not like he got completely, I wouldn't say he got completely dominated, like embarrassed, but it was reasonably wide for Skeet. I'm simply saying that his effort in that fight is underrated, and I think it's a fight worth watching. Not a fight of the year candidate yet, we'll get there, but certainly worth the price of admission if you got a chance to take a look at that fight. So he loses to Brad Skeet. That's, of course, him losing his titles that he had just earned, worked hard to earn. Moves up a little bit, gets a, a get back, meets Frankie Gavin. Frankie Gavin's 2016. He beats Frankie Gavin, stops him. Now, I want to key on Frankie Gavin just for a split second because I think it's important that you understand the significance of him getting this win. Up until, up until the Gavin fight, Sam Eggington, he did not get opportunities like you would expect based on his experience. He didn't get it. He was not, he was kind of overlooked. He was a little bit overlooked in places. When he meets Frankie Gavin, Frankie Gavin was, he had two losses at this point. 
And the losses that he had were to, at the time, two up-and-coming guys. One of them was Leonard Bundu, and those that remember Leonard Bundu or don't remember, they've heard the name, but they can't place why anybody should care about him. Leonard Bundu's most notable fight, I would argue, was when he lost to Keith Thurman in 2014. For the WBA, that set Keith on the path of becoming the full WBA champion. But Frank Frankie Gavin, I would argue that when Bundu fought Frankie Gavin just before Keith Thurman, the Frankie Gavin fight took something out of Bundu that Keith Thurman once upon a time capitalized on. Meaning that Keith took, he saw an opportunity in a, not weakened, but a vulnerable Bundu for that win. That would go the distance, but he was never the same fighter was Bundu, never the same fighter after that loss. He made a comeback, took two soft touches, won a regional title, met Errol Spence in 2016, gets knocked out in six. He's never fought since as Bundu. Keith would then give criticism to Errol Spence saying, well, he's beaten by leftovers and this and that and the other, which is true. But if you look at the totality of performance, it's similar in what we're seeing with Crawford and Spence and Porter. Keith went the distance, full distance with Bundu, and I would argue it wasn't close. Errol Spence knocks him out in six. So Errol Spence had a better appearance of performance. And it was not, this was like, this was like one of Spence's best knockouts ever. And again, retired from the business. Bundu's never been seen since. I'm saying here though, that ultimately we can trace it back. I argue that Bundu was never the same after meeting Frankie Gavin. I bring that up because when Frankie then eventually, so he basically, basically meets Bundu, right? Takes a loss. Then he later fights Kell Brook, gets stopped. That title is, that's where Kell got the IBF title, which I believe is a vacant that Kell took off of Frankie Gavin in a stoppage. Now, after Kell Brook and even before that, arguably, Frankie Gavin had met Brad Skeet. Frankie Gavin had beaten Brad Skeet. Other than that, he takes soft touches. He meets Sam Eggington. Sam Eggington stops him in eight rounds. I would argue Frankie Gavin was never the same fighter. After he met Sam Eggington, that was a war, ladies and gentlemen. If you never saw the Eggington and Gavin fight, it's yet another one that was an absolute war of attrition. You have two guys who are actively working to get the other one out of there. And Gavin got the worst of it, arguably got the worst of it. Now, Gavin had come in kind of heavy. And so we don't know how the weight shift had affected him. We know that he was slightly on the decline, but not greatly. But he was never the same fighter after meeting Sam Eggington. Now comes the the notable fight, the fight that everybody remembers or should. Paulie Malinaji versus Sam Eggington out in Greenwich. This is the float like a butterfly, sting like a butterfly fight where there's highlights of the fight showing Paulie throwing this blistering combo that's not even hurting Sam and Sam just drops his hands and just eats the shots because they're not doing anything. And this was Paulie's retirement fight. That fight was not going to move the needle in terms of like fight of the year or any of that kind of stuff. But what it did is it showed number one, Paulie was done. Number two, Eggington was tough as hell because 
Paulie always had a sharp jab. He was able to keep Zab Judah honest. He was able to keep guys honest. The only guy that was guys that were ever able to really give the pieces to Paulie were Sean Porter and Danny Swift. And if you look back, like even Broder, Broder was having some difficulties. Judah was having difficulties. I argued Judah through that fight. But when Eggington goes in here, yes, Paulie's a bit washed by the time he gets to this fight. But it wasn't like he was not active. It wasn't like he wasn't trying. It wasn't like he wasn't throwing. It wasn't like he wasn't active. Paulie was there. It's just that he couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't do anything about, he couldn't move Eggington at all. He couldn't do anything. If you get a chance to see that highlight, it's called float like a butterfly, sting like a butterfly. It's hilarious. 2017, May. Now, he fought Paulie in March. May, he fights Seferino Rodriguez. Seferino Rodriguez was a solid, solid fighter. Regional though he was, solid fighter, didn't really fight anybody of significant note, but I'm saying he was a solid fighter, solid contender. He was tough in what he brought to the table. Even though he didn't have that great of a resume, he had never stepped up hardly to anybody. But he was tough in what he did. Eggington pretty much ran through this guy. It went to like 10 rounds, but Rodriguez gets dropped. And like I said, I think Eggington just, I don't want to say he had his way with him, but it wasn't, I felt it wasn't close in what I saw on this one. Eggington would then go on to take some soft touches until he meets Liam Smith in 2019. This is his next, he had taken a loss in the middle of this to uh, one of the soft touches. I would argue it's a cherry pick gone wrong. That was Hassan Wakimio. I would argue that was a cherry pick gone wrong in my opinion. But meets Liam Smith. Liam Smith in 2019, everybody knew that Liam Smith was going to be somebody. So the outcome didn't surprise me. Smith stops him in five. Nobody was surprised by the outcome, but we were surprised at how quickly he was able to do it. Because again, up to that point, Eggington, he was, you couldn't move this guy. He wasn't going anywhere. And it wasn't anything that told us that that's what should have happened. Now, remember this is a version of Liam Smith that was after Canelo Alvarez knocked him out in the ninth. After Jaime Munguia went the distance with him and dropped him in 2018. This is after all that. And he was still able to take care of Sam Eggington in short order. Still able to take care of Mario Lozano. Still be able to take care of Roberto Garcia. Tough, solid opponents. Liam Smith was still in it. And that tells you the levels of guys like Canelo and guys like Munguia that he goes from those two top and, and Liam Williams, which he beat twice. But it tells you the levels of Liam Smith and how really good Liam Smith was at the time during his prime years. He was actually a very good fighter. And people then criticized Canelo for that fight. It took place at 154. But this is the, this is the best version of Canelo at this point. It was, it was, that fight was amazing to watch. Um, if you got a chance to watch it live, Canelo and Liam, William, uh, Liam Smith, amazing fight to watch. And I remember after this fight, this is when Floyd was talking to all the Smith brothers. And he basically said, you know, I'll beat all y'all in the same night, which is comedy. But Liam Smith was a tough guy, tough fighter, solid fighter, tough, rough, rugged. And I don't think he gets enough credit and then is able to beat Sam Eggington with ease 
when other people had had such difficulty dealing with him versus, you know, what Smith was able to do. So Smith stops him in five. Eggington goes back, takes some rebuilds, soft touches. Now, just to put in perspective, Eggington fought like six times in 2019, five or six times. He was he was doing a, a high rate of fights in 2017. I think he fought three times. Three was like his average. And then as he got older, he was fighting more. So it wasn't like today's fighters in like welterweight and light where they take less fights. It's like, you know, Mr. Gary Russell Jr. where he fights like once a year. This guy, as he got older, he's fighting more. Certainly the level of competition was not <laughs> what you would expect. Like he fought a guy with 100 losses. But the point is he's fighting more as a rebuild. 2020, the magic happens. This guy gets in there with Ted Cheeseman and we get eggs and cheese for the IBF International, you talk about fight of the year, you talk about absolute war, you already hopefully have seen my lifeblood boxing coverage on the big cheese. This fight was worth the price of admission and the thing is, it wasn't, I'm pretty sure it wasn't even the main event. It was like an un, a co-main or something. And it's another example where these guys, you know that Cheeseman and Eggington are nowhere near compensated like they should be, but they're not getting the top billing even though they go out there and they give you the fight of the year. And I'll come back to the fight of the years, but this fight, eggs and cheese, you need to see this fight. I'm pretty sure it's online. You need to see this fight. Even though Eggington lost, it doesn't matter. You need to see this fight. Sam Eggington versus Ted Cheeseman out in Brentwood. You need to see this fight. This was in August. He's back, Eggington is back, after that war, he's back fighting in freaking December and he fights Ashley Theophane. And of course, this is like the the absolute worst version of Theophane. Theophane's already on the way out. He's been in the business a long time. It was an easy work for Eggington. He gets dropped. I think he got dropped in the second or something and stopped in the sixth. Not even close. This is out in the UK again, but yeah, Theophane was already on the end. So I don't rate the, the fact that Theophane, he was already older. However, Theophane is a solid boxer, and we need to give Eggington credit for that win. He's now, Eggington's now slowing down. Eggington at this point, just to give you some nuts and bolts about this dude, I'm pretty sure right now he's only in his 20s. I want to say he's like 28 right now. 28, 29. He's young. He's a young guy. But he's already got almost 40 fights on under his belt, and he's a young guy. It's like Canelo in a way. So he beats, stops Ashley Theophane, fights Carlos Molina. Everybody knows or should know Carlos Molina. He's a veteran of the business, warrior, true warrior in spirit. Has had wars over the years in the past. Most notable, I would call out, would be probably the fight with Corey Spinks, which was a very dirty, rough type fight. And then the, the uh, one with James Kirkland. I'll call it those two as my most memorable one. Maybe even Mike Alvarado, even though that one's kind of like, eh. But certainly the one, uh, Corey Spinks, is the one I remember most notably. But ultimately a tough competitor. Sam Eggington beats him by decision. It's not a wide decision, but it was obvious that Eggington was the superior fighter that night. I wouldn't say it's like a wide dominant, but he was obviously the superior fighter. And then he takes a soft touch, does Eggington in uh, September, this past September 2021. I say soft touch because he was basically a prospect level guy and Eggington pulls it out. 
They called it a split just because Eggington was bleeding in that fight. If I recall, he got busted open and he was bleeding. And of course, the blood skews certain judges. But I didn't think that it was a close fight. And I didn't give the opponent's name, Jaco, Jaco. I think it's called how you pronounce it. But I didn't I didn't see a close fight. I saw wide for Sam Eggington in, from what I saw personally. Frankie Gavin, to me, that was a fight of the year candidate worth the price of admission um, Ted Cheeseman fight of the year candidate his very last one with Chikau fight of the year like this guy had fight of the year candidates each and every freaking time and the thing is he was still winning fights like it's not like he went on a steep decline and that's because he's young but the important takeaway is the guy's a warrior he goes in there and he gives you your money's worth almost every time out I can't think of a single fight where he half-assed it. He's always been a warrior. He's always been aggressive, but he's effective with his aggression. Like, there's a bit of dirty in what he does, but he's purposely trying to make sure the fans get what they want every single time. Far as I know, he is not retired. However, it shows in certain places that he may have retired, that the Jaco fight might have been his last. But I know that he's been, he's still in Vada. So I don't know if that's he's in Vada because he plans to come back or if he truly did retire. Because of the wars, I wouldn't blame him for retiring because he's put a lot of he's put some years mileage on his body from 147 all the way up to 160. He's put miles on his body, but he's still a young guy. I don't know how to make um, him. It's like Darnell Boone. You know, you got some guys that are just rough and tough and give people problems. If he's retired, I take my hat off to him for giving us really excellent fights over the years. He turned pro just in 2012, and between 2012 and 2021, the guy gave us multiple fight of the year candidates. How many fighters can you say that about? How many fighters can you say were able to, within five years of turning pro, retire world champions, literally retire them by knockout or stoppage, and we're not talking guys on the steep decline. Like Frankie Gavin wasn't on any steep decline. He was certainly declining. He wasn't on a steep decline. How many times can you say this guy? Because you look at guys that are the eye test guys, right? Like Boots Ennis. Boots Ennis to this day has never been in a fight of the year candidate. Like when we look at the totality of somebody's performance, a fight of the year candidate is a very specific credential that very few fighters have been able to pull off over the years. Errol Spence has had it. Keith Thurman's had it. Sean Porter's had it. Danny Swift's had it. I'm pretty sure Crawford didn't have it at 147, but he probably had it at 135. I seem to recall at least one fight. I know the one with Gamboa, which I think was 140. It might have been 135. But I know the Gamboa one was considered a candidate at least. But very few fighters get fight of the year candidates. Do you know why? Because when you have two guys matched up, if it looks like they're 50-50 and then one of them just basically outclasses the other, that's not going to be a fight of the year candidate. But if it looks like 50-50 and they fight like a 50-50, that's going to be a fight of the year candidate. And that's the key. Very few fighters can pull that off where they, they can match toe for toe, pound for pound, blow for blow with the person that they're in there with. That's what this guy, Sam Eggington, was doing. That's what Ted Cheeseman was doing. 
That's what some of these guys have been able to do and why they belong, in my opinion, in the lifeblood of boxing because those are the fights you remember. Think about it. Arturo Gotti and Mickey, Irish Mickey Ward. <laughs> I think all three of them hit fight of the year, if not candidacy, across that. But if you look at, let's say, Tommy Hearns and Pepino Cuevas, nobody would call that a fight of the year candidate, even though it was a memorable fight. It was so one-sided, Pepino got destroyed, and then people made excuses. Pepino was old and this and that. Bottom line is Pepino was still a champion. He was still there, and he was still in the game. He was an aggressive, quality fighter, and Hearns just blitzed him and took him out. Not a fight of the year candidate, still memorable. When you have fight of the year candidates, two-sided fight of the year candidates, you're Victor Ortiz and Chino Maidana's of the world, right? These are the ones we remember. These are the ones that stand the test of time. And when you got a guy like this who's only been in the business shortly over five years and he's able to pull this off or shortly over, sorry, seven years and he's able to pull this off, you got to take your hat off guys like this. And these are the ones that we should celebrate, not the ones like a boring Frank Sanchez. And I want the whole impetus behind lifeblood of boxing is so I can spotlight those fighters because we know they're hard to find especially when you're regional, like he was, Eggington, it's hard to know they're out there, but now you can go back and you can watch some of these fights and you can see why I'm so hypercritical of a guy like boring Frank Sanchez because that guy's never going to give you a fight of the year candidate compared to Eggington, compared to Cheeseman, compared to Porter. It's not even close. And that's the spirit of this is when we think of boxing, yes, it's a science and yes, it's hit and not get hit, but also it's a fight. At the end of the day, it's a fight, and we should feel like it's a fight, a contest. Gladiators that are going at it, and in some cases, some of them do it with precision, and they avoid getting hit more than others. And some block punches with their face, but they're just tough, and they can take it and come forward. We should celebrate both styles, as long as it's entertaining the fans. There are going to be people out there that say Eggington had an ugly style. I got it. There are people out there that criticize him being dirty. I got it. I would argue Crawford's just as dirty as Eggington ever was, and we can prove that, and get Crawford celebrated as number one pound for pound, even though Crawford has infrequently been in a fight of the year candidate. He's been in them, but in the same span of time as Eggington? No. Has Crawford has the number same number of frequency of fights within a year? No. Has Crawford gone after the smoke repeatedly? No. Has Crawford actually stepped up in challenge each time? No. So why is it then Eggington doesn't get his props? He should. And that's not criticizing any of the fighter. I'm saying why I celebrate guys like Eggington, guys like Cheeseman, guys like Jeff Horn is because they're there trying to entertain the fans regardless of the payday, regardless of the check. They're doing it for the love of the sport. And they're who we need to celebrate. They're who deserve the respect. They're who the one they're the ones that really should be seen on a grander scale than they are. And we should celebrate them and respect them and call them to attention because they entertain us. So that others who are new who come after us can look back and say, This person told me this guy was worth watching. I'm gonna check it out. Okay, boxing's not dead. I just have to look elsewhere to find those fighters that are giving me the fights that I really want. So Sam Eggington, the savage, fighting out of Birmingham in the West Midlands. I take my hat off to you, sir. 
because you've given us absolute wars. I don't know if you're retired, if you're hearing this. If you are retired, enjoy it because you put some miles on your body considering if you're less than 30 years old and the kinds of wars and the kinds of guys you've fought at this age, I got nothing but respect for you. And I, if you are not retired, I would love to see you back in, in the ring. I don't know that you know middleweight is a good fit for you given who's all there, but it would be kind of interesting to see you in the mix with some of the middleweight contenders that are out there and just see where you go from there. Um, I, I would keep you away from certain guys just because you're still young and haven't been in the business that long. So I would keep you away from certain guys. If you're able to move to 154, I think you could still make some noise. It might be interesting to see you go up against somebody like Tim Zhu or Patrick Tessera or somebody that's, or even Connor Ben. I'll even throw Connor Ben. Ooh, that's a good one. Ooh. Sam Eggington and Connor Ben. Listen, Savage, if you are listening and you're not retired or you're considering coming back if you are retired, you and Connor Ben in the UK, that, my friend, that one is a, that one is another fight of the year. I can't I can't think of another fighter at 154. I can't think of another fighter that you would match so well against like, geez, that would be, and that would be the ultimate test for Conor Ben too, because Eggington's so dang tough. Eggington is so rock solid. He's been stopped before, but the guys that stopped him are like the upper echelon, you know, Joaquinio. Yeah. But I don't, I don't really rate that one, but the Liam Smith one, we're talking the upper echelon in Liam Smith, but Conor Ben would be a really good, really good test. I would love to see that fight. If we can make that fight happen, I think that would surpass the Cheeseman fight, dude, in Sister War. Anyhow, I'm getting too much fanboy. Sam Eggington, the Savage, lifeblood of boxing, folks.